Did you know that eating flavanol-rich dark chocolate may be a promising tool for managing cognitive decline? Studies from Columbia and other research centers show the real cognitive benefits of daily cocoa flavanol consumption. Benefits like improvements in executive cognitive function, processing speed, working memory, and mood were observed in studies where participants consumed 500 to 900 milligrams of cocoa flavanols daily. I searched high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Flava Naturals performance dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to help promote healthy brain function. I use it every day. To order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. There, you can read about the science behind cocoa flavanols and get great recipes too. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. In part one, we talked to our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, about his latest project. He's always he did fascinating things. He's developed uh, so many concepts and so many projects over his uh, very, very fruitful career. And uh, the latest is his research on something called Himalayan tartary buckwheat, uh, or HTB, uh, a new product has come out of that. It's uh, HTB Rejuvenate, which is um, designed for immunorejuvenation, uh, but also, uh, according to the research, uh, works pretty well to stabilize glycemic response. Uh, Jeff, uh, you know, in in this day and age where, uh, you know, the ketogenic diet is so popular, a lot of people are eschewing grains, not chewing grains, they're eschewing grains uh, <laughs> because of the, you know, the, their starchy, carbohydrate-laden characteristics. Uh, but uh, HTB is something different, isn't it, entirely? Yes, thank you, Ron. That, um, that's been an interesting education challenge that we've had because, with the name buckwheat, and wheat I'm emphasizing, everyone assumes that uh, HTB is a grain, and it's actually not a grain. It's, uh, it has no relationship uh, phylogenetically, meaning through its, uh, its genetic classification, to that of the grains. It is actually a fruit seed flower. So it would be more like a nut flower than a grain flower, even though it sometimes is called a grain. I think that's just for convenience. And the reason that I, I accentuate that is that um, it's a, it's a non-gluten-containing uh, material. It has a different starch composition, a different uh, fiber composition, uh, and a different uh, protein profile than do the grains. And so although it often is lumped uh, inappropriately into the grain family, it is a, it's actually not a grain. Now that then raises the question, okay, if it's not a grain, is it still not good uh, if you are on a ketogenic program. And here's where I think uh, the, the story gets um, uh, maybe more interesting or more complex, and I'll try to summarize it. Uh, in this uh, most recent issue of Nature Medicine, uh, the journal Nature Medicine, were three back-to-back papers that I think are, are, are classics. Um, the, uh, the first paper was a extraordinarily detailed in- resonance, meaning in a metabolic uh, unit at NIH study, of the difference in, in people between them consuming a, 
high-fat, low-carbohydrate versus a high-carbohydrate, low-fat mm-hmm. diet. And uh, this was a study of its exquisite control that's uh, second to none uh, in any intervention trial I've ever ever seen. It was a very real-world study where these people lived in the in a metabolic ward for a month and uh, were fed these diets. No cheating. And the diets were at were ad lib, meaning uh, th- this was like you would be a real-world person out in the world. Mm-hmm. You could take snacks. You, the calories were not controlled, but they were recorded very carefully, everything every person ate. And everything was analyzed in these people, complete metagenomic analysis of their, of their microbiome, complete uh, transcriptomics, complete uh, metabolomics, complete phenomics. I mean, they had everything that you could measure done on them over the course of uh, the month of the study, and they, they crossed over. They were on uh, one diet for two weeks and then crossed over and were on the second diet for the second two weeks. Now, what were the outcome of this study? Well, there are many, many outcomes, and it would probably use up more than all of our time trying to go over all the takeaways from this uh, elegant study. But I can summarize by saying what they found was that, uh, as as you might expect, the um, the high-fat, low-carbohydrate approach that did lead to uh, ketones uh, and beta-hydroxybutyrate levels in the blood that could be measured mm-hmm. – uh, this you know, goes back to Bob Atkins, actually, friend mm-hmm. you and I have known for decades. That the purple um, urine sticks, the ketone but, sticks, that whole deal, right? Exactly. But um, the particular effects of that were uh, kind of disadvantageous relative to uh, serum lipid levels. And so these people had, when they measured particle size and particle count of the various LDLs, VLDLs, and HDLs, they found that it it moved that person into a cardiogenic uh, pattern um, with regard to that approach. So this would be more of your, of your, oh, I guess you'd call it um, uh, ketogenic uh, of paleo variety. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the people that were on the more carbohydrate-rich, low, uh, lower-fat diet, these would be plant-based diets, basically, I want to emphasize in this second example, um, and the plants that they used were, were not, um, they were a variety of foods of commerce. Um, they were not selected to only be the best plant foods. So they, they, these people, you know, had some ultra processed plant foods as mm-hmm. well as, as, uh, minimally re- refined products. And what they found in those individuals, as you'd expect, is their serum lipid levels were improved, but their glycemic response was adversely affected, mm-hmm. meaning they had, Hyperinsulin and uh, and glucose excursions. So it's a bit of a trade-off. And so the conclusion out, yeah. of the of, yeah. yeah exactly it's a tr- and so then you ask well where is there a sweet spot mm-hmm. and the sweet spot uh, as as they infer is a diet that actually has the most favorable effect upon the gut microbiome because the gut microbiome controls both aspects of your lipids and of your glucose in your blood, and it may be one of the most important controlling factors for regulating the risk to cardiometabolic disease, which is one of the most common problems we have in our society today, including obesity. And so the other two studies, and that was the first of the three studies, the other two were studies done at Harvard Mass General, um, and one was a collaborative study with, uh, with group in Italy as well in which they looked at uh, metagenomic analysis of the microbiome under different dietary con- considerations and sh- and demonstrated that the microbiome is probably one of the most important determinants of how your body responds to 
the diet and the, and the metabolic consequences and sequelae that result mm. from it. Oh. And that a diet that is somewhat in between, somewhere in between the ketogenic uh, paleo and the plant food uh, low-fat diet, somewhere in the middle is probably the sweet spot with uh, a lot of unrefined uh, plant-based foods with adequate protein and adequate omega-3 fatty acids. So it almost bends itself back to confirming what Boyd Eaton and Melvin Conner told us in their classic 1985 paper in the New England Journal of Medicine called the Paleolithic Diet, which mm-hmm. they talked about the characteristics of the diet that our Paleolithic ancestors consume, which is, by the way, not the Paleolithic diet that people are eating today. Right, right. Uh, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's more of a, a modulated uh, dietary uh, which is high in vegetables, about sixty percent of the yeah. calories from uh, from vegetable products, and about forty percent because they couldn't always products. depend so, on uh, mastodon yeah. meat. You know, there wasn't uh, you right. just couldn't go down to <laughs> exactly. uh, you know Whole Foods and get uh, you know prime uh, uh, you know uh, uh, mastodon uh, cutlets. Couldn't yeah, you I got think them that's from time what take, takes us back then to why I'm so excited, or we're so excited about the uh, Himalayan tartary buckwheat because it it kind of fits in the gap in between uh, the vegetable and the animal uh, disposition of protein, carbohydrate, fat, vitamin, mineral, and phytochemicals it, it, and fiber. It kind of has a portfolio of nutrients that, that uh, influences the uh, gut microbiome in such a way that it encourages diversity and the appropriate uh, types of uh, microbiota that are associated with glucoregulation and and proper glycemic response and proper lipid management and lowered uh, risk of things like fatty liver and and metabolic syndrome associated with inflammation. I've had the pills, uh, which, you know, then you don't don't taste it. uh, But what about the flour products? Can you make, uh, you know, HTB pancakes or, or muffins or, or are there cereal versions of this, uh, available? And how does it taste? Yes, we have, we actually have a food lab. Our Big Bold Health Group has a food lab that our colleagues that have worked with me for over 20 years, uh, Barb Schultz, a uh, nurse and, uh, master's in nutrition and Michelle Babb, who's, uh, Resident dietitian and has her MS in nutrition. Our colleagues that have been part of our team for two decades, so they've been working together with Dr. Arthi Chandra, who's our medical director of Big Bold Health, uh, to put together our um, recipe and menu guide plan. This is all uh, recipes and menus that have been developed around Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Now, as you might expect, uh, Himalayan tartary buckwheat, because it has this rich array of phytochemicals, has its own unique flavor. Uh, it's not a. Uh, it's not like white flour <laughs> at all. Right. It has yeah. a very. Dis- <laughs> I was going to say that, and I thought I better stay away from that. Plan I, I inadvertently. Yeah, uh, not plant. I inadvertently punned right there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what we have found is, if if it's um, formulated correctly, it's very palatable. It doesn't uh, produce a, an adverse uh, organoleptic uh, outcome. Um, and we actually now have what's called the Himalayan Tartary Buckwheat Pancake Club because right. we uh, we put together a chai. Himalayan turkey buckwheat pancake recipe that everyone loves, and now we have a pancake club. Uh, we use actually for people who want uh, syrup on it. We found that the uh, very interesting uh, natural maple flavored um, monk fruit syrup works quite well mm-hmm. as an alternative low glycemic response. And so, yes, that's one of the recipes that we send out with our flour, and we're okay. now 
the only people in the world actually that are, that is uh, making available um, organically certified Himalayan tartary buckwheat flour. So that that can again be seen on our bigboldhealth.com website. Anyone wants to kind of let's see where where we're going with that particular product. Okay, I'm sure this is going to morph into all kinds of different uh, variations because we have some ingenious people out there who have uh, culinary skills and they can apply them to this uh, new new food compound. Uh, I wanted to switch gears uh, because uh, the big elephant in the room is the pandemic, which seems to be waning but continues. And uh, uh, it's prompted you to have a lot to say about uh, the nature of uh, health uh, and how we can um, use an all of the above approach to get our get ourselves out of this. Yes, I think my story, Ron, is exactly your story. I think we would we're we're um, we were born at a separate at birth, I think, because I think we would have the exact same story. Um, the uh, back when this first started to be seen uh, with the um, acknowledgement by Wuhan and China that this was a human-human transmissible virus and it, it had the uh, the characteristics that could be a global problem. Um, I, like many, many others, got very interested in, you know, what's going on and, and read everything I could uh, about what we were learning concerning that the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And as it started to develop into a pandemic, um, I found it extraordinarily, uh, and still do, interesting that the prevalence in different countries of it uh, becoming infective and ultimately leading to hospitalization and even death was very dramatically different from country to country. Even if um, the exposure had been there, the infectivity appeared to be different uh, among different countries. And one of those that I followed early on very closely, because uh, I've traveled extensively to China and also to uh, to Taiwan, uh, knowing that Taiwan is, is less than 30 miles uh, away from China and that there are something like a million visitors that travel routinely back and forth on a daily basis from Taiwan to uh, to China, I, f- I felt like uh, if there was any country that was going to be a mm-hmm. kind of a laboratory for COVID, it was going to be Taiwan. So I started following uh, Taiwan very carefully. One of the differences in, in Taiwan, uh, of course, is the um, uh, the, the woman who is the, the female leader of Taiwan, I think she was the first Asian female to lead a country in, in Asia. Um, she is an academic. Uh, she is uh, extraordinarily well-trained um, and has a big technology background. She's a Ph.D. and, and, uh, and a law professor. She's a hashtag then, uh, uh, follow the chosen... science person. Yes, exactly. And her, her vice chancellor, uh, or vice president, uh, uh, was is a MD PhD and John Hopkins trained in public health and, and infectious diseases. So I thought, well, here are two really science uh, strong individuals, and so they they put in place very early on in Taiwan um, plans to really uh, regulate the virus and to communicate to the population its its risk. And as I I watched what happened there, I was amazed to see that. Even with all the possibility of infection, and everyone is predicting that Taiwan is going to be a horrible example of infection, uh, over the course of the year now since this pandemic became what it is, they've had um, only a few hundred um, defined cases and just a handful of deaths in 
hardly any uh, seriously hospitalized patients. And the reason for it not only was the uh, the nature of the political and economic and social structure of Taiwan, but I think it was also that they started contact tracing and and uh, and, and and testing very very early, and they had. Uh, smart uh, devices for the smartphones, knowing that everybody in Asia has a smartphone, uh, and they could communicate directly with people, and and they could really start doing tracing very very early, and and um, uh, isolating and and getting people to uh, uh, to follow, you know, using masks and things of that nature, social distancing, and it 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 really the proof of the, of the pudding is, is the extraordinarily low level of infectivity. What we've what we recognize is that this virus over time uh, has demonstrated that the spike proteins um, that stick out on the architecture of the surface of the virus, that we've all seen the uh, diagrams of, are very um, sticky to receptors, uh, particularly the ACE2 receptors, the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptors on mucosal uh, tissues like the uh, nasal pharynx and the lungs and even the digestive tract, and therefore it, it, their infectivity is, is really dependent upon exposure, which is dependent upon other comorbidities. And here's where the, yep. st- the story came very important, because what I started to recognize from my trips to Taiwan is that um, generally their level of health and in the, in, in their nutrition in Taiwan, from my experience, is better than the average American. Mm-hmm. And so I started to see early on that there were uh, infectivities that were being seen not just in older age individuals with senescence immune systems, but also in younger people who had what we call comorbidities. And those comorbidities were obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, um, and those those conditions uh, are regulators of the immune system. And so they're in, indicative of individuals who are already walking around thinking they're healthy, but they're actually at risk because their immune systems are being compromised. Their resiliency uh, and the uh, the ability of their immune system to respond favorably is already compromised because of the, these comorbidities. So I wrote an article, I think it was in February or mm-hmm. March. Russ, I remember you were very year. prescient about this, uh, you know, and, and I, I look to it for uh, inspiration because we kind of working along the same lines uh, about, yeah. you know, what are the what are the risk factors? Why, why was the West hit so hard? And the third world, paradoxically, you know, where health resources lag and poverty is rampant. Eh, they, I mean, they've had it, but not to the extent we've had it. Yeah, and I think that, as you said, this really uh, opens up a very, very important discussion because the uh, the article that I wrote in March was entitled A Pandemic Within a Pandemic. Yes. And it was not but two or three weeks later that the British Medical Journal published uh, an article that I think it was virtually the same title. Was, was the twin we pandemics. Coming, right. I mean, there's Miriam. Yeah, that was right. it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. And. What people forget about, uh, or maybe didn't know, is that if we were to not have COVID at all, uh, in the world at large, there are about 38 million people that die each year from chronic illness that are associated with these comorbidities. So we already have a pandemic of chronic illness going on in the world of compromised immunity. Mm -hmm. Every one of those conditions, be it vascular disease, arthritis, dementia, um, diabetes, cancer, has an immunological connection. 
And when your immune system is compromised, you have less headspace, less resilience. And so if, if, if the unexpected occurs, which often it does in our lives at, at certain times, you don't have that uh, capability of responding favorably. And now your immune system is, uh, is, is not doing the job for you that, that you'd like it to. So if we start looking at countries, say, in Africa, where it was thought to be uh, um, another one of the places where COVID-19 would be a horrible problem, epidemic, uh, because of uh, low medical services and and um, the individuals would not have access to the kind of care you might expect in the Western world, developed world. Um, it's actually been fairly low in most of those countries. Um, and the reason for that may be, and I, I'm saying maybe because uh, this has not been totally proven yet, that the, the lifestyles those people have lived, which... Uh, exposes them early on to various types of um, infectious organisms and they live in, you know, in uh, less sterile conditions, has poisoned their immune system and kind of trained it, if I can use the word in immunology, uh, immunotraining, Mm -hmm. to actually be more resilient to what is uh, later going to be coming from other newborn infectious agents like uh, a SARS-CoV-2 virus. So uh, the combination of healthier immune systems to begin with, lower comorbidities, uh, less obesity, less hypertension, less chronic inflammation. We call that inflammaging. All of those are associated with better microbiomes too, even, you know. That's exactly right. Precisely. So uh, that's, uh, that's, I think, the story that's been emerging. And what is unearthed now or uh, unfolded for us is that we're just not a really well society when it comes to our immune system on average. And those Mm -hmm. people that are are most at risk are those that have had the most uh, exposure to the virus, that have the, the less uh, advantaged uh, medical services, who's uh, often living in food deserts and and uh, don't have the opportunity for some of the aspects that relate to improving their immune function that uh, other uh, more fortunate people have. Well, you know, COVID-19 will eventually wane, you know, either herd immunity or, you know, the vaccine or better medications will stem the tide of the pandemic uh, eventually sooner or later. But uh, do you think that uh, this will serve as a call to action? Because, you, as you say, uh, there's a, a, you know, there's a pandemic within the pandemic and the pandemic of, of uh, preventable diseases that kill far more millions than COVID did, uh, you know, it should prompt us to to do something about our vulnerability. I think you said it eloquently. I could not add anything that would be more clear and and uh, more strong than what you just said. Um, I, I think that uh, when we start asking questions about an aging society, which we know we are, and we start looking at what happens if your reserves are compromised as you start growing older and you have a senescent immune system, um, you start seeing things like dementia. You start seeing things like certain forms of cancer. You start seeing a rising tide of type 2 diabetes and the sequelae of events that occurs from that. So uh, there is now the uh, <laughs> the recognition that there is not going to be one new drug or a series of new drugs that develop that, that will solve this problem. This problem is uh, has social determinants associated with it, cultural determinants, and uh, how we live, how we eat, how we think, how we move. Uh, how, how our environment is structured, the toxins and the xenobiotics that we're exposed to, uh, how that connects to global climate change. All these things are woven together. In fact, I've said in my more recent articles that uh, the story of the immune system is really a metaphor 
to life on our planet. We have an immune system. A plant has an immune system. The planet has an immune system. They're all interwoven. Mm -hmm. They all cross-communicate. And if one is imbalanced, they're all imbalanced. So our immune systems imbalance are connected to imbalanced immune system in plants and the way we're growing monoculture. And they're connected into the uh, immune imbalance of the, of the planetary systems that are associated with global warming. So all of these are interrelated, and uh, we need to take on, uh, as, as I think my grandchildren are, I'm very encouraged by their, their, their enlightenment and to see how this translates into action as they grow older. I, I'm not sure I'll be around, but hopefully it's a sign of, of positive uh, systems thinking. Well, your legacy will certainly be long-lasting because, uh, you know, I can't think of anyone who's contributed more to uh, uh, the movement to, uh, you know, look at uh, natural solutions uh, in an innovative way, uh, applying scientific rigor to that uh, to that process of advocacy. And you certainly embody that. And so uh, where can people find out more about uh, your stuff? I mean, uh, a lot of health professionals listen to this podcast, and if they're not yet turned on to you, um, bigboldhealth.com is the place to find out about HTB. Uh, what about uh, some of your latest projects? You uh, also head up something called PLMI, which runs a fantastic conference. Yeah, I think uh, for me professionally on, on kind of the – on the um the technical side, uh, jeffreybland.com is probably the best. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-B-L-A-N-D.com is probably the best place to go. That had, had kind of cataloged uh, my publications, videos, and all the things that we've been doing over the years. Okay. Well, I, you know, I just can't, uh, I can't tell you how much I've learned from you. And, and I used to get stuck in traffic and on my way to medical school because uh, I had a long commute. I lived in Greenwich Village and my medical school was in the Bronx. Uh, and I used to say, hey, no problem. I'll just put in a cassette, a Jeffrey Brown <laughs> functional medicine update the cassette. First day. And I can even remember the theme uh. music, you know, and, and every week it was like, uh, well, actually it was done on a monthly basis, but it was always like uh, thought provoking and you always brought to the fore uh, some of the most important, uh, you know, innovators in the field, along with your insights about um, some new aspect of functional medicine. So uh, I owe it. A great debt to you, and uh, I appreciate uh, your generosity in spending time with us here on Intelligent Medicine. Also, uh, you know, much luck in getting the word out about HTV Rejuvenate. Uh, it sounds like a fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, medical food. Well, Ron, I, I thank you, and I, you know, I, I just pass back to you the same uh, acknowledgement that you gave me. Your work over the decades has been really at the at the high level of. Uh, of getting people to understand options and opportunities for improving their health through things that are not necessarily coming directly off a prescription pad. So I, I really want to honor you and, and your efforts as well. It's, uh, it's amazing to me when I think back that, um, I did that, uh, that cassette audio magazine you're talking about called Function Lesson Update for 32 years, never missed a month in 32 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, someone recently said to me, Jeff, do you realize you were probably the first podcaster and this yes. was before podcasting was podcast? So it, it's really kind of interesting to look historically at, at our, at our journey together, Ron. So thanks so much. Indeed. Well, thank you so much. That was Dr. Jeffrey Bland. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands 
that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoppinStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoppinStore.com. DearHoppinStore.com.